And good morning once again. It's good to see everybody. Can I uh, have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 2. If you're new with us, we are working our way through the Gospel of John here at Calvary. And uh, we come to chapter 2, or we have just come to it, started it today. But um, as we come to John 2, we come to a story that has become somewhat controversial. A story that in some ways has confused people, both Christian and non-Christian alike. It's a story of a wedding that was held in the town of Cana. A wedding whose guest list included Jesus, his disciples, and Jesus' mother, Mary. Now, there's nothing controversial or confusing about a wedding itself. I mean, it happened every week all over the world. Um, what makes this story confusing and somewhat controversial was the interaction between Jesus and his mother, as well as how Jesus seems to be, in the minds of some, promoting alcohol consumption through the first miracle of his ministry. Now, let me just say this by way of introduction. I want you to be sensitive as we study John's gospel to the fact that John is very selective in the stories and miracles he chooses to present to his readers. He himself said at the end of this book that Jesus did many other miracles during his earthly ministry, so much so that um, if they were written one by one, I suppose, John said, that even, even the world itself <clears throat> excuse me, could not contain the books that would be written. But I have chosen these that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John is telling us that he chose certain things to include in his gospel. Not just for historical information, but also for spiritual application. You see, the scriptures in general, and John's gospel in particular, are rich in typology. Now, the dictionary defines typology as follows. The study and, in, the study and interpretation of types and symbols originally and especially found in the Bible. And what that means is that in these literal stories, events, historical happenings, and whatever, the Spirit has included them in His Word, yes, because they have historical value, but also to teach us spiritual lessons. Jesus did this all the time during His earthly ministry when He taught using parables. The, the word parable comes from two Greek words that literally mean to lay alongside. And what Jesus did through a parable was He would lay alongside a spiritual truth he would lay alongside of it an earthly story, something they all knew, they all could all relate to. And then using that earthly story, he then talked about a spiritual truth that they would understand better by looking at that common everyday story. I think, in my mind, the classic example of the ultimate form of using uh, metaphors and things to communicate uh, spiritual truth was John Bunyan's book, Pilgrim's Progress. <laughs> Now, he took this to a whole new level, okay? But um, the story of this wedding, guys, not only gives us some insight into the cultural aspects of a, of a Jewish wedding, uh, but John is using it. Ultimately, the Holy Spirit writing through John, of course, uh, is using it to communicate to us some, in, some important spiritual truths and lessons. So I don't want to lose you this morning. Stay with me, okay? In fact, we're just going to just get into uh, chapter 2 just by way of introduction. I get very far, but using it as an introduction to teach us about 
uh, you know, Jewish wedding customs and things and how they have a spiritual significance to our lives as Christians. So verse 1 we read, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Now, the third day could be a reference to the third day that they had, after they arrived in Cana, or it could be a reference to the third day after Nathaniel uh, became a disciple of Christ, which is at the end of chapter 1, verses 47 to 51, we read about that. But Cana was a little village located about eight or nine miles from Nazareth. Now, as you know, Jesus grew up in Nazareth, and no doubt most of his family still lived there. In fact, many believe that this wedding could have been for one of Jesus' relatives, a cousin perhaps. And this could be why Mary was so um, upset that the family ran out of wine. Very, you didn't want to, we'll talk more about this next week. Uh, that was a real bad thing if you didn't have enough wine for the whole wedding, okay? And why was she so concerned about it? And why did she seem to have authority over the servants, verse 5? Possibly because she was family. Now, just to add a little side note, it would seem or appear by this time that Joseph, Mary's husband, had died. And, uh, but I want you to understand that a wedding back then was a big deal. Weddings back then were a big deal. In fact, they were a major social event in first century Israel. Most of the weddings back then lasted a week. Uh, but if the family was wealthy, they could go a couple weeks. And if it was roy a royal family, a month. That's, you know, they, they liked the party. They didn't have much else to look forward to. So they, you know, they got into these feast days and these special events and things. But... Uh, to fully understand the spiritual lessons that we can glean from a Jewish wedding, we need to understand the stages that were involved in a typical Jewish marriage. The very first step in, a Jewish, in the Jewish marriage process was known as the uh, Shadukin. The Shadukin. The Shadukin refers to the choosing of a bride for a son. Most marriages back then were arranged by the father of the groom. A biblical example of this will be found in Genesis chapter 24 when Abraham sent his eldest servant Eliezer back to their hometown, their home country, I should say, into their hometown to uh, get a bride for his, wife, for his son Isaac. Now, this was usually uh, uh, taken place or this was usually happened by the father himself. The father himself would usually be the one to choose the bride, but God told Abraham he was not allowed to leave the land of Canaan, so he sends Eliezer, his uh, servant. Now, that was acceptable. If a father couldn't uh, go personally uh, to find a bride, he could send uh, somebody who would, stay, he would go in his place. And so Eliezer did that. And you can read the story out of Genesis 24. A fascinating story, really, and uh, how that Abraham uh, sends out uh, Eliezer and gathers a bride for Isaac. You see, the Jewish people, and they weren't the only ones, but for our context, the Jewish people uh, looked at marriage as something far too important to leave in the hands of teenagers. They just believed it was not only vital for the health of their child and family, but also for society. That, you know, that you pair the right person up with your child. Uh, and they just saw this as way too big, uh, important an issue to leave in the hands of teenagers, okay? So that's why the fathers would get the brides or choose a bride for the son. Now, they may have been onto something there. I don't know. We'll leave that up to you to think about. But um, 
After a potential bride was chosen, the next step was the kaduba. And the word kaduba means written, written. And the kaduba was back then and still is today the marriage contract, the marriage contract. Before the marriage contract would be signed, the father of the groom would negotiate the dowry, also known as the bride price, with the father of the bride. And a portion of the bride price would go to the bride to use as security in the event that uh, she was widowed or her husband divorced her. So uh, it was actually alimony paid in advance. If a man would eventually divorce his wife, she couldn't divorce him in Jewish culture. Uh, he could only divorce her, okay? But uh, the idea was that, uh, that uh, you know, she was given part of the bride price uh, from her father. He would give part of it to her, and she would keep it in case, you know, uh, she was widowed or her husband divorced her. She had something to fall back on. There were no social programs back then. This was a way to help these gals to function after, you know, their husband passed or, you know, uh, they were, you know, uh, divorced or something like that. Uh, the rest of the money was kept by the father of the bride. And this would be his compensation. For what? For all the years he raised her. He fed her. He clothed her. And now he couldn't look to her to be a farmhand because that was the idea back then. You had a lot of kids because, you know, the boys would grow up and they would, and the girls, as they were growing up, of course, they would all work around the family farm. But when a woman got to be a marrying age and she got married, well, her husband took her away from her house. And so how was the father going to recoup? He could, I mean, you know, the son would stay there. A son would, would become a laborer on the family farm. He would carry on the family name, inherit the family business, and so on. Uh, a girl didn't do that. This was the idea behind the bride price. It helped to kind of the father to recoup some of his expenses in raising his daughter. Now, after the bride price was agreed upon, a down payment was given, and a contract would be signed to validate the agreement. And after that, the couple, in preparation for the betrothal, would separately immerse themselves in a ritual purification pool known as a mikvah. And the idea was it was a kind of a ritual ceremonial thing where you would bathe in this mikvah, you were kind of washing away dirt, defilement, you were now spiritually clean and ready to either go into the temple to worship the Lord. They did this, you know, in the New Testament times. Uh, there was mikvahs right there in the temple uh, precincts, and they would uh, bathe before they would ascend the steps to the temple where they would worship God, offer sacrifices. That was always a necessary prerequisite. You didn't want to come to God defiled, or with the dirt of the world on you, you might say. So this was a kind of a symbolic thing. Well, after this couple had both bathed in this mikvah, then they were ready to take the next step, which was called in the Hebrew the yerusin. Yerusin. And that word simply means betrothal. Also, this, uh, this uh, thing was also called the kedushim, a word that means sanctification or to be set apart. Now, uh, this really defined what was going on. Remember now, these two young people had now been taken, we would say, off the market, okay? Uh, away from the world, away from all of the potential mates. And now they were focusing on one another. They were now separated from the world. 
And they were focusing now on each other. There's all now preparation for uh, marriage, okay? But um, at this point, then the couple would stand together under a special canopy known as a chuppah, and they would publicly exchange vows. Now, this was considered the actual marriage ceremony. And while under the chuppah, the couple would exchange objects of value such as rings, and uh, a cup of wine was shared to seal the betrothal vows. At this point, the couple was considered legally married, so much so that if later they decide to break things off, they would have to pursue a formal divorce, or if one of them should happen to die during the betrothal period, uh, the other was considered a widow or a widower. During this period, even though the couple was considered legally married, listen, the marriage wasn't consummated and they didn't live together. You see, in Jewish culture, even though the couple at this point was considered legally married, they knew they couldn't live with each other or consummate the marriage until he first went to his father's house and prepared a place for them to live. It was called the preparation of the bridal chamber. In those days, the couple would live with his parents on their property. Why? Because that's where his inheritance was in his land, all right? So that's why he would go to uh, his father's house and prepare a place for them to live in because uh, that's where everything was for him. And, and she was marrying him and he would be the provider. His land was there to farm and so on. Now, the way he did this or the guys did this back then was they would go to the father's house, his father's house, and simply uh, build a room addition, okay, um, a dwelling place. Uh, an apartment, okay, for them to eventually live in after the marriage had been consummated. This would take upwards of a year or more, okay, upwards of a year or more. Now, during this time, while he was busy preparing a place for them, she was to keep herself busy uh, in preparation for the marriage or the actual consummation and so on. Uh, part of her responsibility was to make marriage garments for all the guests that would be attending, it was up to the host to provide marriage garments for the guests. Now, you remember the parable where Jesus talked about a guy who, you know, and, and, and Jesus said, look, the people that were bidden to come to the wedding uh, refused, talking about the Jewish people, go into the highways and byways and compel anybody who wants to come to the feast to come be a part of it. And uh, the master was going through looking at his guests, and he saw one man without a gar wedding garment, he said, sir, how is it that you don't have the proper attire? Uh, and the guy was silent, and he said, cast him into the outer darkness. We read that and go, well, that sounds pretty cruel. Maybe the guy didn't, couldn't afford a tuxedo, okay? <laughs> you know, you invite the guy to a wedding off the street, he comes in, you know, he's not dressed right, you throw him out? What's that all about? No, the idea was the host provided the garment. He refused to wear it. Of course, the garment speaks of Christ's righteousness. We either clothe ourselves in Christ's righteousness or we stand before him in our own filthy works of self-righteousness. And if anyone tries to stand before God, says, well, I don't need Jesus. I can do it myself. I'm a good person. Watch me. I'm going to stand before God. I'll tell him all the good things I've done. That's called standing in God's presence in, uh, wrapped in your own robes of self-righteousness, filthy garments, uh, God called them. 
And of course, the only thing God can do is cast you out into hell. That's the idea. But, uh, but she'd be busy. Okay, that's the point I'm making. She'd be busy just like anyone who has been betrothed to Christ. We'll talk about this more in a moment. Um, we need to be busy until he comes back for us. Now, as I said, he was going to be going away for a year or more. Of course, her heart was broken that she was going to be, he, he wouldn't see her again for a whole year at least. And uh, her heart was troubled. Uh, maybe she worried that, how was she going to do it without him? She came to depend on him. He was someone she just really depended on. Now he's going away. And uh, she was very troubled by this and was going to miss him incredibly. But before he left, he would say to her something along these lines, I'm going to go and prepare a place for us, but I will be back to get you, and then we will never be apart again. This is also an important part of the whole marriage process in the Jewish culture. This promise is known as the matan. Literally, it's called the bridal gift. The matan amounted to a pledge of his love for her. His purpose was really to remind, be a reminder to his bride during the days of their separation that his love for her would never, never diminish. He would think about her constantly and pledges, would pledge to her to come back to take her to be to finish this whole thing. I mean that, you know, what he started, he promised he would finish. He would return and she would become officially his wife. Very important part of this. And um, <laughs> having the worst time with my papers today. Maybe it's time for that iPod. All the cool pastors use the iPod and walk around. All right. So he's, he's gone away now, and he's preparing a place for them. Okay, She's trying to keep herself busy. She's really missing him, but she's got that pledge. He's coming. He's, he's, his love will not diminish. He'll not, never stop thinking about her, and he's going to come back and, and finish what he started. But when he finished the bridal chamber, the tradition was that the man didn't have the right to say, okay, I finished the bridal chamber. I'm going to go get my bride. That wasn't his to decide. That right was reserved for his father. The father alone had the authority to say when the bridal chamber was totally finished and the son could go get his bride. So the bridegroom, consequently, couldn't give his bride uh, a date when he was coming back. Okay? I mean, all he could say to her was, I'm going to prepare a place for us, as you know, but I don't have the exact day or an hour that I'll be back because that is something that only my father knows. Only my father. It's up to him. And don't you know these Jewish fathers were kind of rascals when it came to this? Okay? You can imagine they had a lot of fun with this. Uh, the son would, you know, get everything done and run into his father and say, Dad, Dad, I'm finished. I feel like it's done. Can I go get my bride? And a father would walk around. Yes, he's ready to go. The father would just calm down, start walking around, looking. Well, I don't like the way you hung that door. Uh, you know, hey, you can put a little more effort into this over here. Remember, this is going to be your bridal chamber. Your wife's going to live here with you. Don't you want it to be perfect? Okay, Dad, okay, fine. You know, and He'd run around and make everything perfect. Well, eventually it would lead to the bridegroom coming for his bride. Now, that, the way that worked was this way. There was a liaison appointed that would keep the bride updated. I mean, you know, he would take messages back and forth from the bride to the bridegroom. 
And he was called the friend of the bridegroom, kind of uh, uh, like our best man, uh, although it was a much bigger responsibility in Jewish culture to be the friend of the bridegroom. And uh, he would kind of keep, it was his job to keep an eye on the whole process of the bridal chamber and all the construction and so on. And he would send back periodically progress reports uh, to the bride and her bridesmaids, letting them know how things were going. He would also try to encourage the bridegroom, the bride uh, and her bridesmaids, but um, especially as they were getting, he knew they were getting, it was getting pretty close for the bridal chamber to be finished, uh, he would start giving her messages. It's been over a year now. He would start feeding her messages, look, it won't be long now, okay? Stay vigilant, keep watching for his coming kind of a thing, all right? And uh, therefore, the women, the bridesmaids, knew roughly when he was going to be coming, although they didn't, of course, know the day or the hour, as we said. But uh, it was the custom of these Jewish fathers, all right, to wait until the middle of the night, now you can imagine, okay? And, and they all knew this, okay? They all knew it. But it was the custom of these Jewish fathers to wait until the middle of the night. Then the father would wake up his son and say, Son, it's time. Go get your bride. He would quickly gather up all of his friends, and uh, they would go running through the streets of Jerusalem or whatever village they lived in with shouts of joy and excitement. Now, it was customary for one of the groom's guys, one of his groomsmen, uh, to go ahead of the procession. Now, you know, uh, as, the, as the, uh, the groom is gathering up the rest of his friends, he probably goes to this guy's house first and says, look, the fa my father says, time to get my bride. So this one guy would run in and ahead of the, all the other friends of the bridegroom, and he would get to the house of the bride. It was his responsibility to yell, behold, the bridegroom comes. And then he would blow the trumpet, which was the shofar, okay, the ram's horn. And um, again, it was the job of the bridesmaids to keep watching for the bridegroom's coming. See, again, they were getting these progress reports. And they knew that, look, it was going to be any day now. And as soon as the friend of the bride says, girls, uh, it would, it's going to be any day now. As soon as they heard that, they went into what we would call a candlelight vigil. Of course, they used oil-burning lamps back then. And they would stay up for the last day two three i don't know of course staying up for a couple days or so you would tend to fall asleep if you weren't really careful to watch also it was their responsibility to make sure they had enough oil that their lamps didn't go out now here's the thing from what i've been able to study in jewish culture uh, if a bridesmaid's lamp if she fell asleep or her lamp went out and she didn't have enough oil she would be excluded from the marriage supper that was a great dishonor I mean, in that culture, it was a big deal. You weren't prepared. This was a big honor to be a bridesmaid, and you blew it. You fell asleep. You didn't bring enough oil. They would actually exclude her. It was kind of a social, she became a kind of a social outcast. Now, let me just stop and interject this. In Matthew 25, we read the parable of the ten virgins, right? Remember Jesus talked about ten virgins and so on. Five made sure they had enough oil. Uh, when the bridegroom came and five ran out and so on. Let me just say this to you. So many Christians make that, the ten virgins, the church. Why? Because in the Bible, the church is called the virgin bride of Christ. But she's called the virgin bride of Christ. 
She's never referred to in the plural. You have to understand that Matthew 25, the focus is not the church, it's Israel. You see, in Matthew 25, we read the bridegroom. We read the ten virgins, the bridemaids. We don't read of the church, the bride. She's, she's gone. She's not the focus. She's already in heaven with the Lord, all right? These are the virgins. These are the ones, the Jews, who will be alive when the Lord returns. Some of them will be believers. They'll have the oil. Some of them will not be believers. And those that are ready will be allowed to come into the kingdom. Those that are not will be excluded. Just to throw that out there, because uh, a lot of folks, if you make the ten virgins the church in Matthew 25, you got m- m- big problems. Big problems, okay? You got people losing their salvation, buying the Holy Spirit. <laughs> it's a real theological mess, all right? The ten virgins are bridesmaids in a Jewish wedding. So they're supposed to, this front guy gets there and says, Behold, the bridegroom comes, blows the trumpet. Now, the, that's the only warning now that the girls are going to get before he actually, the bridegroom actually gets there. When he gets there, he rushes into her house, which is acceptable. They don't arrest him for breaking and entering. They, they, they understand, okay, it's all cultural. He rushes into the bride's house and he snatches her away. It's literally an abduction, an abduction. And guys, this is the final step in the wedding process called the nisium, the nisium, which literally means to carry away. She is carried away back to his father's house, to the bridal chamber, where the, mer- where the marriage is then consummated. Now, after the marriage is consummated, and they spend several days there, okay? After the marriage was consummated, he would emerge, and of course, family and friends are all outside now, all right? He would emerge from the bridal chamber with his bride by his side to the shouts and applause of the people uh, that would be there. Of course, this would be friends, family, the whole community. This is a big thing for the whole community, all right? And uh, he would then emerge and present his bride to them. This would be the first time she would stand beside her husband and be officially presented as his wife. And guys, this led to the pinnacle, the climax of the whole celebration, which was the marriage supper. Now, we have the reception, okay, after the wedding, and um, we have have a sit-down dinner, very nice, okay. Uh, This was a little different, all right, a little different. this marriage supper would last seven full days, as I said, and it would include food, music, dance, and absolute celebration. After this week of celebration at the marriage supper, the groom was free then to take his bride to their new home, to live together as husband and wife in full listen, in full covenant marriage. Now, of course, all of that applies to our relationship with Jesus. Let me show you how. The Shadukin, remember, that's when the father um, chose a bride for his son. The Bible says in Ephesians 1 verse 4, 
that we were chosen for the Son to be his bride by the Father before the foundation of the world. We were chosen, and this is kind of interesting because in Jewish culture, sometimes the Father would choose a bride, a, son, a bride for his son before he even had a son or anyone else had the daughter. You see, in Jewish culture, if two families were very close, very close, the fathers might get together and say, you know what? If I have a son someday and you have a daughter, let's marry them. Or if you have a son and I have a daughter, let's marry them. Sometimes they were chosen to be together before they were even born. Ephesians 1.4 says that we were chosen by the Father to be the bride of Christ before we were ever born. In fact, it was an eternity past, right? Next would be the Kaduba. The Kaduba. This was where the bride price was settled upon. And a written contract was signed sealing the covenant. As far as the bride price went, well, Jesus paid that price with his own blood on Calvary's cross. Guys, you might say the whole focus of Jesus' first coming was to fulfill the bride price, to pay the price for those that would become his bride. And as Peter said, we were not redeemed with uh, perishable things like gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. This would be the dowry, you might say. You might say the dowry. And uh, at that point, a mutual covenant was entered into. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. I want to show you something. Remember we said that after they uh, came together for the betrothal, Jewish couple, and uh, vows were exchanged, then articles of value were exchanged, often a ring, okay? A ring was given, an engagement ring, all right? And uh, then, of course, he would go away and prepare a place and so on. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, it says, In him, in Christ, you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. You know what Paul's saying? That Jesus put a down payment on us. He gave us an engagement ring. Do you realize the word guaranteed there? The Holy Spirit was the guarantee. That's the Greek word, arobon. And it could be translated down payment or engagement ring. Our Savior gave us an engagement ring, the Holy Spirit, to, to prove he was in earnest. That's why it sometimes was associated with a down payment on a house or something. It proved that he was in earnest. He was not playing games or making promises he didn't intend to keep, obviously. That when he made a promise to us, that if we became his, we, we entered into the vows of marriage with him, we accepted him as our Lord and Savior, he gave us that engagement ring of the Holy Spirit before he went away to prepare a place for us. And that just proved that he was in earnest. And of course, then the couple would often uh, share a cup of wine as a symbol of their joy uh, and, uh, and uh, to kind of cement everything, if you will. 
And we read how that, the night before Jesus went to the cross, how in the upper room he shared a cup of wine, actually a few cups. Uh, there were four in the Passover meal. And um, the, four, the third cup was the cup of redemption, which he shared with his disciples. And then he went. He said, I'm going to go away now, and I won't drink the, uh, the, uh, the, this last cup, the fruit of the vine. I won't drink it until I drink it with you and do in my Father's kingdom. That last cup was called the cup of the kingdom or the cup of joy. Jesus, and then he said to us, as often as you drink, remember me. So we continue to celebrate our Lord's promise to us that he's coming. Okay, He's coming to take possession of us. Um, and fulfill what he started. And, uh, of course, after this young couple entered into this covenant, as we just got done saying, the next thing the young man would do would be to go to his father's house and prepare a place for them to live. In John chapter 14, verse 1, now remember, in that culture, she would be sad, she would be um, brokenhearted, that he was going away. Maybe her heart was even troubled uh, at the prospect of not, him not being around for a whole year because she had come to depend on him. The same thing was true with Jesus' disciples. They had entered into a covenant with him in the sense where they chose to become his disciples. And at one point before he went to the cross, he said, I'm going away soon. And where I'm going, you can't follow me, not yet. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't be afraid, okay? I'm going to prepare a place for you. And I will come again to receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Guys, that was Jesus' matan pledge to us as his bride. I know I'm going to be gone for a while. I want you to know I'll never forget about you. I will think about you constantly. And I promise I will come back to get you someday. I'm going to finish what I started here. I made you a promise. I gave you an engagement ring, the Holy Spirit, to show you I was in earnest. I will be back. I will be back. And of course, when the father would eventually say to his son, son, it's time, go get your bride, of course, he would quickly gather his friends, and they would go running through the streets of Jerusalem or their village, and they would be blowing trumpets and shouting with excitement. Of course, we think about 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. How it says, when the Lord comes back for his bride, his church, he will come with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. And we shall be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And guys, when the rapture happens and we are caught up to meet the Lord and we are taken to heaven, okay? At that point, at that point, our marriage to Jesus will be consummated. How? We will enter into a level of intimacy and oneness with him we've never known. We have a level of intimacy and oneness right now. It's only a shadow of what's coming. We will enter into a, 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 a relationship with him as a husband and wife after they've gotten married and uh, are then uh, allowed to enter into the deepest, the most intimate level of intimacy, physically speaking, this is what's going to happen. We are going to be one with our Savior, our bridegroom, uh, in a way we've never thought possible, and that oneness will be complete at that time, 
and permanent. Now, while we're in heaven rejoicing with the Lord and really enjoying this intimacy with Him, it's going to last seven years during which time the tribulation period is going to be happening down on the earth, right? And the world is going to be judged for, you know, rejecting Jesus and living in sin. But then at the end of the seven-year tribulation period, we read in the scriptures how our Lord will come back, Revelation 19, with His bride, with His bride coming back to the earth, with His bride at His side, and will officially present us to the world as His wife. In Revelation 19, verse 7, we read, Let us be glad and rejoice and give Him glory, for the marriage of the supper of excuse me, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His wife has made herself ready. Listen, in Revelation 19, verse 7, the phrase, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, should actually be translated, for the marriage supper of the Lamb has come. The mar See, by this time, we are already married to Jesus, which is made clear in verse 7 when we are called His wife. His wife has made herself ready. Ready for what? Well, ready for the marriage supper or feast, which always came after the consummation after the consummation. We read in Revelation 19, verse 9, Then he said to me, John, write, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are true, the true sayings of God. And the Bible says at that point, we will enter into the millennial kingdom where Jesus will reign and we will reign with him as his bride, his queen, on his throne forever. Let me just close by saying this, okay? You might say, in one aspect, Jesus came to the earth to save sinners. That's true. But also to gather for himself a bride. Now, he wouldn't actually do that personally. He came the first time to die for us to uh, pay the bride price. And then he ascended back to the Father to prepare a place for us. As he did that, he sent a servant, one that would honor him, the Holy Spirit, who would go into all the world and gather the bride of Christ to come to him, right? As we are preparing for our bridegroom's return, for the marriage supper, right? This time of great joy, we busy ourselves with his work. We are introducing people to our Savior. We are clothing them, in a sense, with the wedding garments that they will need when they enter into that marriage feast themselves. If you have not received Jesus as your Lord, your Savior, and your bridegroom, can I just say this? There is time. There is time. That's why he came, to gather a bride to pay the price that we might be redeemed and someday sit with him on his throne as his bride and queen. Now, of course, the alternative, you reject Christ and say to God, I don't really need Jesus. I'm a good person. I'll get there myself. You'll be cast out into hell for eternity. But right now, the Lord is offering anyone who wants to come, come to me. And I'll receive you. You want to enter into a betrothal with me by making vows. And, you know, that's what we did when we 
stood before, you know, we, we made uh, a vow to the Lord, right, that we were going to, he was going to be our Lord, our Savior, and so on. That's when we got saved. Of course, we then were bathed in a ritual cleansing pool, <laughs> water baptism. But Jesus is saying to, to those who have not received him, come to me. This is why I die, that you might become my bride. Live with me forever in my kingdom. Now, for those who have already done that, let me say this to you. The devil is working like I've never seen him work to take people away from Jesus. He's really using a lot of things in the world to dangle in front of Christians to get their eyes off the Lord. A lot of Christians are involved in spiritual adultery. Their hearts are not committed to the Lord as they once were, and they're off pursuing other loves. You fill in the blank of materialism, of money, of whatever it might be. If that's the case, that is a very serious thing. And, and let me say this to you. is only in his presence and in fellowship with him is their fullness of joy. So when a person kind of walks away from the Lord, as a lot of Christians have done, and has gotten back into the world, well, there's no joy. There's no peace. I mean, they're trying to fill the void with drugs and alcohol, whatever else they're doing. You need to repent. Jesus said in John, uh, excuse me, Revelation 2, uh, uh, 2, he said, you know, some of you have left your first love be. He said, you know, remember how it used to be when we first were engaged. Turn around, come back to me, and repeat your first works. Start living with me in the sense that we have this beautiful, intimate relationship. We're engaged. Someday it's going to all be fulfilled. You need to come back to me so that I can fill you once again with the joy of the Spirit and so on. So can I, as we have entered into a new year, can I just encourage you guys that that's the Lord's heart. I mean, he came down to die because he loved his bride and wanted to be with her forever. How can we walk away from him and get into anything the world has to offer? May God give us grace to recommit our lives to him and to do it quickly, that you might again enter into that fullness of joy, that relationship that he wants, that someday when he comes, you'll be ready. And uh, when he takes you off this earth and you see him face to face, as John the Apostle said, you won't be ashamed of his appearing. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word and especially, Lord, the incredible, well, taking a Jewish uh, marriage process and how it relates to our relationship with our Savior and the process we went through. We just thank you, Lord, and praise you. Give us grace, Lord, to be full on committed to you. If we've wandered and our hearts have been given over to other lovers, Lord, forgive us. Give us grace to repent and get back to you. And we thank you, Lord. We ask that you would just make this year a dynamic year of walking closely with you, of being filled with your spirit, and being used by you for your glory. Father, we thank you. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.